This Week in Startups is brought to you by Breather, workspaces and offices designed for growing companies. Visit breather.com slash twist and experience Breather for yourself with a free full day booking. And Carta, simplify how you manage equity with Carta. To get Carta's cap table software, plus a free 409A valuation, go to carta.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis, and I am here with two of my favorite intelligent people to be on the podcast. Really? Kim, my cutler, is with us. She is a partner at Initialize Capital, and uh, you know her work previously uh, on the social media doing tweet storms about housing and politics and local government here in the Bay Area. Delightful topic, if there ever was one, and her long think pieces for TechCrunch. Welcome back to the program, Kim Mai. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are things going at Initialize? You guys have raised a new fund, I yeah, saw? Yeah, we did. Um, we closed a... a, a Fourth fund over the summer, uh, two hundred twenty-five million. Yeah. Wow. Very yeah. good. Uh, and you're putting that to work. Ryan Carson is back on the program. He's been on the program five times. I'm I back. Guess. He's back. He's of course the founder of Treehouse, and you can follow at Treehouse at Initialized, at Kim, my Cutler M A I Cutler and Ryan Carson on the Twitter. Boy, there's been a lot of news, and uh, we'll stay away from politics for now. But transportation is. Uh, about to hit it big, Lyft has uh, filed quietly for their IPO, and uh, Uber as well seems to have filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, and Uber reportedly exploring a deal to buy two electric scooter companies. Obviously, full disclosure, I'm a shareholder in Uber, but I have no knowledge or day-to-day <laughs> information since... I'm friends with the old CEO, not the new one. Right, whoops. I've never met the new CEO, actually. Uh, what do you think, Kim, is the uh, impact of these companies going public? And what do you think of electric scooters? Because there's been kind of this back and forth now of, are, is this a good business or is it not? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in terms of the, in terms of the IPO window, I mean, what was discussed last week was that, I mean, Lyft's filing may have been um, sort of a preemptive move ahead of Uber. And Uber was really the one perhaps like calling the timing. And that was what um, some of the New York Times um, reporting was suggesting. I mean, I think on in terms of like its impact on the Bay Area, um, my understanding is that a lot of the early employees who would have wanted access to liquidity, probably already had some access to liquidity. So it's unclear, you know, what the overall impact will be on kind of the local real estate market here. Which um, normally when a company goes public yeah. here, you get a whatever yeah. number of hundreds of millionaires. Or thousands, a, yeah. Or thousands of millionaires and dozens, of, well, or maybe a half dozen or dozen billionaires yeah. uh, coming out of it, which then drives housing Yeah, bonkers. so like during the Facebook IPO, the 2012 was a big year. In, in barrier real estate. I mean, like housing prices basically essentially doubled very shortly after that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have different headwinds that are happening um, in terms of overall, you know, the overall um, set of real estate, you know, inter- interest rates affecting real estate. And then also, you know, the unclear and untested impact of the tax changes last year that affected the state and local deduction um, and whether that, you know, is having like a, 
softening effect in the real estate market. So you have a lot of things that are kind of it's like definitely gotten out. soft. The market here for the yeah. past year has been yeah. flat. Yeah. Uh, and over 50% of people surveyed in San Francisco said they want to leave. Mm. So that's kind um, of a big... It's probably because you can't... I mean, it's the cost of living imbalance. Like, mm. you combine all the things, like, what you, ha what you have, um, you know, to pay in terms of rent or mortgage, and then if you want to have a family, childcare costs, and then, you know... Yeah, disposable income and all of that combined. Right. It's pretty... It's not going to get better. No, we, but we're seeing a lot of people move up to Portland, where we're yeah. based. Yeah. So I, I literally have friends who have Uber shares that are moving to Portland. Kevin Rose, um, you refer to maybe he's or maybe not. No, um, he's, he's publicly on <laughs> Instagram every day from Portland. Um, but the yeah. point is that I mean, we're seeing a big influx of people who are basically tired of it all down mm -hmm. here. Um, Tim Ferriss, also Uber shareholder who moved to Austin. Mm. Interestingly, no tax in either of those states. State tax. Right. Interesting. Uh, do you have income? I thought Oregon had income tax. No, state. We, do, we don't have state tax. You don't? I mean, um... Uh, sales tax, but we no. do have income. Oh, you do have income. Washington. Yeah. Has oh, okay, income. so you're not saving any money by being important. No, no, but um, the cost of living is what half. It's way less. A I mean, we, we when we chose where Treehouse headquarters were going to be, we could move anywhere in the United States, and we picked Portland. Um, you know, I was on a flight this morning here, mm -hmm. and I'm going to go home tonight, see my kids again. So you get all Our the access. Flight? Yeah, and it's great, easy, That's awesome. So it's sort That's of like funny. LA to. Mm. It's like LA North. Yeah, when I've been to Portland, I mean, I it's uh, it's kind of funny because the sort of reaction, the cultural reaction that you get here from like people who've been in the Bay Area a long time, and they're like, "Oh, you're in the tech industry, or you're a techie who yeah. moved here." <laughs> Portlanders feel that about Californians. So if you kind of show up and yeah, don't you, kind say of you're from California, you look like you're bad. Californian, it might be it might be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they don't they don't like people from california no, no. And it's it's like a it's a running joke and it's not real i mean there is some darker issues going on here around gentrification that are really real in portland it started you're starting to immediately see it happen um literally where our headquarters is you know was the the black part of town and people are getting pushed out so it's it's sad actually to, to see it and be a part of it but it's a reality i think unless you own the home and then it's awesome Right. Like, I know a lot of people in Brooklyn who had bought their homes right. in like, good call. you know, downtrodden <laughs> areas, Greenpoint, Bed-Stuy. They were just in there early because they were artists. Right. That and they out. were prescient enough to buy instead of rent. Yep. And when gentrification happened, they bought $100,000 lofts that became worth a million yeah. over a decade, like 10x. So do you all think that we'll see any startups come out of this wealth being created by the Lyft and Uber IPOs because, you know, early shareholders leave and start companies? I mean, I think there, I mean, I can't recall the name of it, but I do believe there's a couple funds or angel groups that are specifically yeah. predicated. Josh Moore around, in New yeah. York, yeah. Uh, who was the head of New York, started his own syndicate mm. of 100 Uber employees. Oh, really? Interesting. I have a pretty regular influx of Uber employees sharing with me their next idea really yeah. asking for angel investing and a number of them in our uh, syndicate at jason syndicate interesting mm -hmm. all right so it's it's going to have a profound effect right. uh just like lyft and airbnb and palantir because this is all going to happen at the same time it's 150 to 250 billion dollars in market cap is going to appear mm -hmm. in 2019 and the only thing that's happened is it's sped up let's talk a little bit about these scooters mm. Um, do you have them in Portland oh, yeah. yet? It's so funny. They, do people uh, hate them appear. in Portland or do they love them? Um, it's funny. The people like me that don't use them hate them. And the people gotcha. that use them love them. Why do you hate them? Uh, just because I am I feel old now. and I think, Oh, like oh, get off my lawn kind of that. thing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they also seem super dangerous. Um, you know, there's like, it feels like there's kids. I'm 41 now, so everybody feels like a kid now. But, mm -hmm. you know, they're like weaving in and out of traffic and you're thinking, 
haven't have there not been more deaths? I know there's been one, but uh, there's the been a lot of thing deaths. Ever. But I think they probably predate the renting of these because people used to buy them. Right. But they're extraordinarily dangerous when ridden in the street. But I mean, I think a bigger contextual question you want to ask is. Are our streets designed well for safety? Which is like, you know, no. Americans gave over a lot of their public real estate in terms of their road space to cars in the mid 20th century. And if you look at other cities that, um, you know, not only you know say they value different kinds of mobility, but actually obviously prioritize it in their road space. I mean, if you go to um, Copenhagen. Yeah, if you go to any of the, like, there, there's a sidewalk, there's a protected bike lane that is protected by curb space, oh, and I then see. there's limited road space. So, like, the dis- whole design of the experience is really oriented around a d- m- number of different mode shares. And I think in a larger, in a larger um, conversation around mobility and emissions and climate change. I mean, if you look at emissions, 50% of emissions in San Francisco are due to, uh, you know, transportation. And mm-hmm. then 90% of that, that is basically cars and trucks. Yep. And so if you look at that tiny, like single digit percentage, like that's mm. Muni, that's BART, that's bikes, that's, yeah. you know, that's right. lots of different types of things. So if you actually want to make a meaningful impact um, on, on getting closer to, uh, you know, reducing carbon emissions, you actually want to shift the, uh, the way that you prioritize road space, right. and if, so make it yeah. more painful for drivers, right? Yeah, and intentionally making it safer for right. different types of micro mobility for short distances right. that you right. don't necessarily need a car to Are do. Bike lanes working in San Francisco, where like New York, they put a a row of parking spaces, you know, one in the second lane from the left, make the first lane from the street the bike lane, and mm-hmm. then attempt to get people to park essentially in the middle of the street in these sort yeah. of like painted out curbs. I see in New York it works really well, but here I don't think people are getting it because they're parking in the bike lane. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a really, um, it takes a lot, like just to get a protected bike lane. I mean, it it takes so much mm. advocacy here. Um, I mean, We have a folk- couple though, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there there are people have been doing, trying to do like this movement called people protected bike lanes where they'll, they'll show up and kind of, create uh, a barrier of humans to kind really? of dem- yeah it's it's really cool and you can join mm. people protected bike lanes you can wow. um, and you take shifts or something I'm yeah like, i mean just to, like just to draw attention awesome. and then pressure the city government to create more protected bike lanes but like every step and every kind of piece of it is in some sense it often feels really incremental so you'll get like three blocks of valencia mm. that gets like a fully protected bike lane and the rest of it is still kind of the same and so you know it's kind of this piecemeal heart, you know, part process. Whereas like if you go, you know, if we went to Vancouver, Vancouver, like you go to Vancouver and it's like a full, you know, there's a full route around the entire. Four bikes. Four bikes. And then it's protected on both sides by curbs. And it's really kind of pleasant to just take a bike and then ride around the whole of the city. Right. Right. And they got to just do that here. They got to just take. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of advocacy. Um, and it takes a lot of negotiation. You know, these those things just didn't they didn't just happen overnight. They also took like yeah. a political effort as well. There, Bloomberg did it in New York like a maniac. He just took right. Times Square and he's like, right. yeah, there's Boom. no more Broadway on Times Square. He just shut down right. like, half of Times Square, yeah. half of Herald Square. It's like I was you can now that. sit there. The other day it was wild walking through Times Square and just sitting 
for so for weird. hours, you know, yeah. and saying this is fascinating. But and then there's also like the movement to restore parts of European cities to pedestrian only. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty groovy too. But All right, when we get back, I want to know: Should Uber buy one of these electric scooter companies? When we get back on this week in startups. Let me tell you about Breather. We love Breather. If you like to do the work, as I say in my book, you are going to love Breather offices where you can book not just for a day or a half day, but for a week, month, or even a year for from two to 50 people. There's no wasted spaces. And if you want to bring your sales team in for a week, you can rent an extra Breather and no noisy co-working spaces. You get Wi-Fi cleaning, all furnished. They do all the design consultation and no waiting. You can get into a breather in a day or two. If you take a breather office for a month or more, you will receive free same-day access to the network of over 500 spaces across the U.S., Canada, and London. So think about that. If you get a breather office, you get access to all that same-day network of workspaces. It's ideal for growing companies, uh, and their mission is to empower companies with space that helps them meet their full potential with none of the restrictions that hold them back. No long-term negotiating, no long-term leases, and it's your own culture and your own space. You can scale up and down with no fuss, no muss, as your headcount changes. We've been using breathers all the time for our incubator, and it's going great. Here's a crazy, awesome offer from our friends at Breather. Go to breather.com slash twist and experience Breather for yourself with a free full day booking. So Ryan, if you were here for the day, if you had gone to breather.com slash twist, you would get a free day. Kim, you think they should buy, uh, Uber should buy one of these uh, electric scooter companies, Bird? Um, they so bought I jump have bikes. To di- I have to disclose initialize. Oh, you have inv- initializes investor in Skip Scooters. Skip Scooters. Yeah, which is also- which is the boosted board spin out. Is that right? Um, it uh, some of the co-founder, some of the founding team came from boosted boards. Uh, yeah, same cap so, table or no? Is a spin out? Um, no, or, they're different companies. Different but companies. Like, got it. Yeah, uh, we are operating in Skip is operating in Portland. It's also operating uh, in San Francisco. Got yeah. it. And <laughs> how is it going? This well, business. yeah, no, um, <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think if we, uh, there, there are a number of things that Skip did fundamentally differently than some of the other micromobility companies. Such as asking for permission? Such as having a collaborative relationship with a <laughs> lot of uh, city leaders, which is why in part it's one of the companies, the two companies that is operating here. And then also, I mean, uh, there's a lot that, uh, you know that because the founders came from boosted boards, they have a lot of direct hardware experience, which um, makes for a product that is more like holistically integrated between the hardware parts and the software parts. It makes their devices more robust, less mm. prone to wear and tear, um, and um, and also you know extends the lifespan of of the scooters themselves. Yeah, and and you know, I don't think that Skip is running into some of the same. Um, challenges the same device uh, wear and tear you know that seems to be the big thing I read on uh, the interwebs yeah Yeah. we're talking about the bird scooters were like getting destroyed in six weeks and that there's a bunch of them in uh, the Oakland Mm -hmm. Lake what is it Lake Merritt Merritt. I heard like Lake Merritt has like a hundred bird scooters in them (laughs) because people are so pissed off they're throwing them off roofs and whatnot bonkers yeah i mean i think skip is generally 
fairly careful. Like every time you park, you have to take a picture of where you're parking. Really? Um, when they wow. submitted the application to the city, hmm. you know, there was a design for a, a device with a retractable steel scooter, which enables parking. I mean, if you hmm. look at the Vancouver model, Vancouver bikes in their bike share have steel retractable steel cables that allow them to park. Oh, um, and, um, you know, Sanji also really cares about, you know, a, a vision for a successful skip is one in which not only the riders of skip love skip, it's also that the entire community of non-riders also love skip because it is such a responsible actor right. that people love, you know, it, it, you know, it's addition to the city. So, you know, there's also in that process, like the discussion of his commu- community board, which is very in line with Bay Area culture because we love community boards here. Right. So but I have a question. <laughs> I mean, it seems like. Every, every normal person I talk to wants less traffic, would love bike lanes. You know, it'd be great if you had scooter, you know, protected areas. Who is fighting against that? Why why can't we get that done? I mean, why why are roads still prioritized for cars? And it takes I mean, it takes a lot of effort and political will to make these things happen. Like, I mean, there's lots of things that we would love to have. We would love to have like a great public education system. We'd right. love to have affordable housing. You know, those are all things mm, that, you know, true. people say that they all want. But when it actually comes down to the details of you have to make a decision on a given street about, you know, there is a limited area on that street and you can put parking, you can put micro mobility, you can put cars, you can put bus lanes, you can put like mm. HOV lanes, you can put all kinds of stuff. And it it's a zero sum, you know, you have to decide to prioritize some modalities and then deprioritize other. Yeah, it's any kind of share. change. I think in a city is just hard, hard, right? Every city <clears throat> is slow to adopt anything, <clears throat> unless you have like some maniacal mayor <laughs> who doesn't care about public opinion, <clears throat> like well, who's, Giuliani, who is shielded. Right. From who's somewhat cushioned from that? Given you know, in the case of Bloomberg, where he had a lot of capital, and that external personal capital could probably you know assist with you know. Um, helping, you know, talk to critics or whatever, you know. Yeah. Like, but like, you know, in the reality of most cities, like there's an election, there are elections constantly, like you have to maintain, like it's often in that political position, it can be safer, politically safer to do uh, not as much and then choose like one or two priorities that you really want to make a big change on. But then. You so know. you're a fan of the billionaire uh, mayors as, and the rich mayors as opposed not, to the no, career that, politicians, Kim? That's, that's not what I said. I know. That I'm is joking. not what I said. <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> but you do think that there is a plus for them that they can not have to worry about re-election and they have a little bit of resources. So there is some upside to it. Yeah. I mean, the concern there, obviously, is that it, it would be would be less, it, would it look or be less democratic? In that sense of it, like hmm. less truly democratic. If only we had a corollary for this. <laughs> hmm. What kind of example could we come up with? Yeah, but I mean, I mean, that was a critic. I mean, that was a a critique or a you know a a point made about the Bloomberg administration, like because he had so many personal reasons. It wasn't just about re-election campaigns. It was also about like working with advocacy groups and nonprofit groups. You know that yeah. that might oppose some of his initiatives. Yeah. What What do you think about these? Um, Scooter companies, you think it's a good business, right? Well, it seems like a terrible business, um, but that's just from the outside because you you see them strewn about. It seems like they'd be expensive to maintain. Um, People are going to die. Like there's all these bad things, but you see how many people use them. And the only conclusion you can make is that this has to be some part of the future of transportation. 
clearly. And I know that Lyft, I was listening to Lyft on um, the founder on um, how I built this. He said, you know, Lyft is, what we're building is basically, you know, the future of transport. I mean, it's not about cars, it's about all of this. So yeah. surely one of them is going to buy, you know, you know, a bird, lime, one of them. Yep. Um, uh, it, I, that seems like an inevitability. I just think they're probably bad businesses. Um, and that makes sense to acquire them as an additional capability to offer. Uh, they're well, definitely going to be here. In Santa Monica, they were making 20 bucks a day, 10, 20 bucks a day per scooter. And that was just at the start. So, mm-hmm. you you know, for just 65 days a year, take out a couple of rainy days. I think there's four in Santa Monica. Right. And I live there. I think <laughs> I experienced it like literally every right. three months you'd have rain. So if you just say 300 days, 10 bucks a day, that's $3,000 per scooter. That might work. The scooters cost 400 right. and if they, if you threw them away every year, every six months, you'd still be profitable. Yeah. That was why they were able to raise all this money and they were eating into, this is all the inside information, they right. were eating into, I can say it because uh, I have it from secondhand, but um, they were eating into the mid, the mids, you know, the shorter to mid Uber X rides that cost seven oh, bucks, but you would only pay two right. or three. Right, so right. if you were trying to save money, yeah, you know, it's you could save probably fifty percent or two thirds taking a bird, yep, or whatever scooter you chose. Yep. So it, it's definitely a good business. Um, if it's a great business, I'm not sure. But we had the founder of Jump on, hmm. and he got bought by Uber. All oh, right, and he basically nodded when I said you got. It seems logical you guys would get into scooters. So they're basically, I think Uber is going to buy one of these companies and then have jump also probably yep. pursuing it take two swings at bat but i think it'll become a subscription-based service right so i think people will pay 20 bucks a month to have unlimited birds or unlimited scooters put it that way right um so i have a question about the demographic that uses scooters I do you know you, about this can you tell us roughly who rides scooters um i don't i don't have the data on that okay. um i mean anecdotally or visually it's like it's different I mean, it's different in San Francisco versus the East Bay. Got it. I mean, that's also partially because the demographics of San Francisco and the East Bay are different. I see old people on them. Like, I see 40, 50-somethings on them. Like, I see these dorky guys in the financial district with their ties, like, (laughs) whipping over their shoulder, you know? And then you see kids on them in Santa Monica. I mean, I I think it's everybody. Um, It's just a matter of how ridiculous you look. Like, if you're under 40, you probably don't look ridiculous. If you're over 40, you definitely look ridiculous if you're wearing yeah. a suit and riding one of these things. I, I'm kind of curious just to get a bit serious for a second about what is the um, economic sort of demographic? Because it seems like it's one of the classic um, companies that started by kind of wealthier, kind of whiter type people with wealthy white problems, you know, of wanting to ride a scooter. Is that... Am I just being biased? You know, I think it, you I might mean, be being I too woke. You should, yeah, I mean, if you went to if you went to different communities around the Bay Area, there would be different, different socioeconomic groups of people yeah. using. That's scooters. fair. I just thought I'd ask. Yeah, because yeah. in my you know gut instinct, I just see mostly white people. I, yeah, that. I think you're also it's in so, Portland. You're also based in Portland. You're in oh. Portland, which is ninety nine point eight. No, there's five point two percent black people okay. in Portland. So yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's sort of, it, it reminds me of like the Android argument where we're like, oh, poor people don't have phones. It's like, um, yeah, and I'm not saying Android that. phones just... are $99. We said it was rich white people. Right. So like, it's kind of like that white guilt, like, oh, it's got to, it this has to, I, poor people can't possibly afford this. Or, yeah, no, it's not guilt. Minorities just... can't afford this. It's like, 
Are you kidding? It's two dollars a ride, right, Ryan. Right. I mean, no, no, it's, it's I'm, less than taking the bus. I think. I mean, there's it? also. I had a conversation. I was on a panel a couple months ago with one of the SF Bike Coalition's new um, organizers, and you know, they actually do. She's she was Latina, and she grew up in San Francisco. She's San Francisco native, and so she, you know, was behind a lot of the. Uh, Bike Coalition's efforts to do outreach and advocacy to you said communi- Bike Coalition, yeah, like, uh, like yeah, com- communities of color in San Francisco. They were doing all kinds of things like organizing neighborhood rides um, from the Tenderloin to the Mission and in the Bayview, just to like make these communities feel more comfortable that bicycling and cycling and road cycling and city cycling was also could also be for them. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, interesting. That's yeah. interesting. All right, moving on from. Uh, that battle. Uh, it's going to be a record-breaking year here for IPOs. Mm. And uh, the stock market is looking a little bit shaky. Yeah. Um, what impact do we think this is going to have on startups? Treehouse, I think you guys are doing 10, 20 million a year in revenue. That's the whisper number. We're doing great is the answer. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely tens of millions. We're doing great. And how many full-time employees now or ballpark? Now we're up to 80 now. 80, great. Yeah. So just so you know, Kim, here's how I back into it. Here's yeah, his about magic 10K, watch. It's about, he's spending about a million mm-hmm. to a million and a half a month right now, which and I think the company's profitable. That's the whisper or close to it. <laughs> so he's probably doing about fifteen million in revenue and spending about fifteen uh, mm-hmm. with eighty people. That would make sense if you do a little spend. It's like magic. Subscription businesses are doing great. You were this is eight years old now. Eight. Yeah, I was reminiscing back to two thousand eleven when I was on the show and it was in L A. Yeah. So right? eight years. Uh, yeah. Because it was uh, found in 10, it came on 11. Yeah. So you guys are probably halfway to having that or IPO possibility. We want Do you even build, think about that? No, we just want to build a long-term, sustainable, profitable, good business, mm. right? It's kind of back to basics in a way. Um, yeah. You know, we, we started Treehouse when there was a madness around ed tech mm. and this belief that you know, everyone's going to snap their fingers and build billion-dollar ed tech companies, and it it turns out it's just not. Education is not the type of thing you turn into a billion-dollar business real quick. Um, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with important outcomes. So um, we we love what we do. The team's strong. We're growing really fast. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. But we haven't raised a dime since 2014. So, so does that mean you're purposely going slow or? Um, you don't think there's going, an opportunity that rate because right now markets have been hot for that whole four year period. Why not raise 20 million, and go twice as fast? I think it's all about long term. So I, I meet very few founders who are truly thinking about running their businesses till they die. Hmm. It really is a rarity um, where they really believe it. People say that, but actually thinking about it and executing it like that, it's very different. How do your investors feel about you taking like this uh, steady and slow approach as opposed to race to the finish line? I have the the power is the answer. I was one of those lucky founders who basically was a solo founder. I Mm -hmm. I founded with my wife, but I was the only shareholder and raised a tiny bit of money from, you know, Kevin and Chamath and a few people Mm -hmm. early when we didn't need it, we were profitable already. So we just raised after we were profitable didn't raise much, you know, I still mm. own the majority of the company, my wife and I do. So the answer is, I say to my investors, you know, I believe in building a long-term, sustainable, profitable business that is uh, beneficial to the world. And, you know, I'd like you to be on board with that. And thankfully. How do you uh, think about that, Kim? Because you're now a venture capitalist 
and you have a 10-year window with that fund and you got to get things wrapped up in some reasonable amount of time, how would you feel if you were the investor in Treehouse and there were eight years and you had a founder who's like, I don't care about an exit (laughs) (laughs) or raising money and going faster? How would you, let's do the interaction right here. How would you push him without, you know, being too pushy? Or how would Um, you think about a founder who doesn't want to have an exit? All I would say is we're a very founder-friendly firm, mm. and we are start. We are a firm that started by you know founders themselves, like Alexis of yeah. Reddit and um, Gary, who came from Pulse. So yeah, yeah. So probably you'd say okay, <laughs> do, do the right thing. I mean, the part of this is is founded on the belief that if you if you are trying to build something long term that is truly valuable to both the world and its shareholders. If you can do it, it's truly better, right? Mm-hmm. Than than optimizing for a, a moment in time, yeah. right? So I think that's what we're thinking. All about right, it. when we get back, I'll tell you exactly how I would handle <laughs> Ryan building a lifestyle giant business and then not exiting and getting me a return on capital if I was his investor. When we get back, speaking of investors, speaking about cap tables, everybody knows that Silicon Valley wealth comes from equity, not salary. I mean, people are well paid, but if you want to hit the home run, it's going to come from equity. And that data is tracked on something called a cap table. But cap tables, we all know, are broken. Many of them are wrong. I would say maybe one out of three times I review a cap table with our attorneys, we have a different view of that cap table than other people. Uh, And people use spreadsheets and paper certificates and all this nonsense leads to massive amounts of inaccuracy. But Carta fixes cap tables and equity management. Over 10,000 companies and VC firms, people like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, and myself at launch manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity on Carta. As an investor, we are always glad to see our companies using Carta because we can request a cap table and the closing documents directly through the, through the platform. And it creates great transparency and the year-end audit for us runs much smoother. We save about an hour a company if they're using Carta. Uh, it forces founders also to become organized and really understand this important information. There's no risk of losing paper stock certificates. So here is your call to action. Go ahead and get Carta by going to carta.com slash twist and they will uh, give you their great cap table software plus a free 409A valuation. If you don't know what a 409A valuation is, you haven't started your company yet and had to deal with this. So go ahead and visit carta.com slash twist. We use it. We love it. It's awesome. Carta.com slash twist. I promised I would say. Let's hear it. This is how I would deal with it. (laughs) Go. Okay. We're in year nine. Yeah. Let's fast forward to year 10. Okay. Building a great business, just yeah. moving forward. Uh, Ryan, it has been amazing to watch you build this business. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate that. Uh, our fund that you're in is wrapping up. We're 10 years here, and we need to get some liquidity uh, for our investors. We gave you that money, uh, not as a donation, but to obviously <laughs> return money to our investors. Oh. Um, we'd like to open up a discussion about selling our shares uh, to you or to another investor uh, so that we can bank a win. Mm. How do you feel about that? 100% open that. Great. Do you have $10 million to buy our... I do. Great. Here you go. Uh, okay. <laughs> and now we're that done. That was easy. <laughs> but no, that's what's going to happen in yeah, two years yeah. if you don't have an but exit, that's, right? I mean, that's not hard. I mean, I've done secondary before and, you know, it's just oh, yeah. a sales process, mm. you know. It's almost a good opportunity to swap out investors that do deserve a return. Yep. Um, and to find somebody that can come in and be additive to the board, so... I think if that's done professionally, it could be added for everybody. So your position is you never want to sell this? No. I, wow. I say every day, 
I would like to die running treehouse. And if I die before then, I'll probably crawl to the grave and keep going. I mean, I'm extremely passionate about what we do. Yeah. It's kind of off the charts. It's like my religion. Yeah. But I think that's ultimately what it takes to to run a truly great company because it's it's I mean, you have so many founders on the show. You've dealt with so many founders. Yeah. You know about this. I mean, it's the hardest possible thing you can. You still imagine. subscribe to this like Fridays off, and it doesn't no. have to be crazy at work. No, it all ended. That all ended. Yeah, it's crazy at work. I have a, a little story. Go real ahead. Quick, if you want it, if you yeah. want to hear it. So, because um, you were the original, no Fridays. No, yeah. So we didn't. We had a four day work week. We didn't have managers. All of this craziness was going on. Yeah. Um, so two years ago, uh, it was January fourth of two thousand seventeen. Um, we were going through an acquisition potential talk. Um, People wanted to buy you. You were yeah. buying somebody. Who yeah, someone was trying to buy us. And yeah. um, ultimately, I decided it wasn't the right strategic thing for us. It just wasn't a good fit. Um, financially, it wouldn't have been as good of a return as it should have been for the shareholders. So I said, I was texting the founder. I said, I don't think it's going to work. You know, appreciate you going through this process, but it's not going to happen. And uh, he said, are we breaking up over text? Um, yeah. And I was like, yeah, we are. Yep. So he said, well, let's have a phone call. <clears throat> and... Um, I said, fine, let's talk in the morning. Um, and woke up at five, hopped on the phone and said, I'm not gonna work, I'm really sorry. And he said, are you sure? You know, this is like a one plus one equals 10. Come on, like, let's do this, you know? Yeah. And he was supposed to be the salesy CEO. Mm -hmm. You know, I was the product guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I thought this makes sense, you know, maybe, uh, maybe not. And, and finally said, no. And he went quiet and hmm. he said, I was like, hello? And he yeah. said, uh, we're gonna crush you. You know that, right? Ooh. And I said, Ooh, Hmm. I just kind of, I didn't expect him to say that. So I just kind of went quiet and I thought, yeah. that's interesting. Like, yeah. wow, I'm glad I didn't say yes. Um, and so I said, well, I wish you the best, you know, and take care. And I turned into a different person. Wow. Like it was like, I, I You poked the tiger? Yeah, I decided at that moment, I, I, I cared so much about our mission that I would not let anybody kill us. Mm. And so at the moment I was like, I'm gonna wake up 4.30 every day from now on. You know, we're going to have to work super hard and uh, I'm gonna have to learn how to be a, you know, a salesman. Um, and it changed everything. Huh. So. so now it's crazy at work. You're well, scaling. You got, you got your competitive juices flowing. It's good. It's the way it should be at cool. work. Right? All right, Facebook is a complete utter disaster right now. They're, it <laughs> reminds me like what this year is like the, the Uber year. It seems oh, like man. when a company goes through their like, <laughs> hard time every single thing comes out yeah uh, and facebook obviously there's been massive internal tensions oh boy. um and uk parliament seized a bunch of facebook documents i know those documents uh, because i'm in some of them where they were uh talking about punishing rivals and reacting to people in the press um but as part of this whole thing uh, Facebook is failing their black employees and its black users. A former Facebook employee, Mark Lucky, says uh, he released an internal memo uh, prior to his last day with the company stating that Facebook is failing to properly represent Facebook employees and uh, users of color. They actually turned off the post <laughs> for community guidelines. That was a, so bad. That was pretty yeah. bad. Uh, I know. Uh, it's hard to believe. What are, what are your thoughts on this, Ryan? You, so, you're pretty up to date on it. I brought this up because um, on some respects, I can completely relate to white CEOs who are getting this wrong. So the reason why I'm so passionate about this right now is because two years ago, I signed a diversity pledge at mm -hmm. Treehouse. I was like, I believe in diversity inclusion. You know, I'm not a racist. Um, 
And then I turned around and looked at Treehouse and it was basically a bunch of white guys. And I thought, something's really wrong. Yeah. And, and we talked about this on the show last time I was on and just realized that's on me. Like something that's on me as a CEO. It can't, no one else is responsible. Yeah. So went about uh, basically a year long journey of, you know, learning about my white privilege, uh, you know, my male privilege, just stuff that massively affected us. And I, what I realized, oh, I'm not a racist, but I benefited from racism. So now what? And we went about basically trying to fix Treehouse. And it was pretty simple, actually. It required me truly caring as a CEO. That was like step Make one. Make it a priority. Yeah, like this actually matters. Okay. We're going to make it a value in the company. And then we're going to actually measure managers accordingly. And then we worked real hard on it for a while. And we partnered with the Boys and Girls Clubs to actually invest in them. We gave scholarships to our own curriculum. Then we hired apprentices. And it was a lot of work, but it was good. And ultimately, it worked. And so define worked. We we basically are massively changing the percentage of people of color and women at Treehouse, um, like fundamentally. So my conclusion, the reason why I thought this was so fascinating, is you know Facebook it's just getting beat up again and again and again about this, and the only conclusion I can draw is um, at, at companies like Google and Facebook where the engineer is considered God. Like the culture is driven is like circle. Yeah, it's the most important position in those companies. It's it. And then so computer science becomes the gate. So you you build a culture where the only way to become a god at the company is to is to be attached to computer science. And, and they, then you have the pipeline issue because people graduating with PhDs in computer science yeah, it's, maybe match a certain I'd demographic. Careful, I'd be careful about the pipeline rationale. I mean, like... Is it just the word pipeline that's triggering or well, is it no, no, it's not, it's not. This is not a, this is yeah. not a conversation about triggering. This is, um, this is a... The concern would be that if you take that as a rationale, you're absolving yourself of your own responsibility to an active right. participant. But is there a pipeline? Yeah. There's, no. There is actually a pipeline. Issue, no, th so there? there's there's not. So like what what we've learned is all that you have to change is the computer science requirement. It, that, so so and and it's, and that's not lowering the bar. What you're saying is is there's actually a better way to get talent that's actually more indicative of potential, hmm. you know, success. It, all of this, and me as a white male saying, the only way I know how to signal uh, quality talent is by looking for white computer science graduates coming from Stanford. And, and and so my only conclusion is like, Mark must not ultimately care. There's like a deep part of this that means that he- It's not a priority for him. Not is, a priority, yeah. Yeah, I would yeah. say he might care, but it's not a priority. Well, they're the same thing. Is it? I don't know, I'm trying to think that through. <laughs> you can't disconnect it's the two. the same thing. Yeah. People could care about something and not you, make it a priority, I think. Eh, you're ultimately saying, I, I don't care. <laughs> you know, like you, you could care about the environment, still ride a private jet. Would you say <laughs> right. the person cares or not? Yeah. Like, so this is sad. It, I keep saying this. This is literally the, the, the CEO's fault. I mean, it's. Yeah. What I mean, do you think, Kim? I, let's talk I about think this a lot of there, sure. I mean, I, 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 if I am remembering correctly, and I could be wrong, I remember, I remember Jessica Gwynn writing a story for USA Today, looking at graduates in CS from American universities, and I wanted to say that the number overall was something like four percent, but the number showing up at these companies was like two percent. So already, like, hmm. if you were really matching, you would at least keep the same level, right? If you're throwing so off not even hitting people, the yeah. dropout rate for people of color in computer science is eighty to ninety percent. Yeah, you know the uh, Mitch and Freda Kapoor uh, run mm. a program that I spoke at in Berkeley where they just prepare. Uh, people of color who are going into college 
to not drop out, to make sure they have the underlying coursework yeah. to lower the dropout rate because of that statistic. Yeah. The, the, all Everybody just needs to understand that um, there's this thing called equity. And this is the deep thing I learned is that I used to think America was an equal playing field. You know, you kind of raised it like, you know, like work hard. Yeah. And it turns out that a great analogy is that um, the starting line analogy where you're on a racetrack, yep. right? Yep. And so if you're white, cis, male, you you kind of like start like three laps ahead. And if you're a black woman, especially if you're LGBTQ, you start like negative three laps. And so the problem is no, no one's starting at the same point. Um, right. So, you kinda, so the person who's running, who's a white cis male could feel like they're running really hard. Yeah, I'm, I'm working hard. I'm working hard, but they just, they, they got just to started. start. They started like a ahead. minute before yeah, everybody I kinda, else, right? I kind of relate to that, because I used to get in a little trouble on Twitter. I was like, listen, America's <laughs> an imperfect meritocracy. Obviously, it's imperfect, but it's still the best meritocracy it's, I know. Sadly, it's not. It's not That's a meritocracy. Meritocracy is a word that was, you know, popularized in, a, I want to say, 1950s or 1960s era novel that was written by a British author and it was written in a totally satirical sense. And then people took that word from that book and started using it. Well, let me ask you you this way, Kim. Can a person, if they have the motivation from anywhere in America, learn skills online with Treehouse and become a developer? Or do you believe that they can't? So this assumes a number of things. Do they have... Yes and no. Do they have... Do they they have other... Are they making... Do they have income and time to do that? Like, are they... Are they making minimum wage where they have to work, like... Treehouse is 20 bucks a month. Yeah. No, but, like, it's It's also the time time issue. Yeah. And then the rent in their city... Do they have obligations? Like, a lot of... um, Average American watches four hours of TV a a lot of folks that I've met... You know, one one issue that I've... um, you know, when I've talked to people of color who work in the tech industry and have casual conversations with them about their backgrounds, they're doing all kinds of other, like a lot of them are doing all kinds of other things. Like, you know, their parents' house was foreclosed on in the last economic crisis, which disproportionately affected African-American homeowners. And they're not only working for one of these big tech companies, they're also paying for their parents and their families' livelihoods. And they've got student debt. And they, you know, and that's just a whole bunch of other things. Going backwards, isn't it? Um, And so you're tacking that onto like, do they have time? Can they go online? Yeah, of course they can go online. And then there's also an issue of, of role models and motivation and feel and like that's the danger. Like They're entrepreneurship, even talk about yeah. Their entrepreneurship is like yeah. um. There is a uh. You know, there. I think there is a. We should find the study, but there was like a knitting circle study of uh that that like I want to say Tyler Cowen put on his blog. Like mm. he linked to it on his blog a couple like a month or two ago, and it was talking about like whether people started to feel the motivation to go into starting their own small businesses, and it was a really kind of like a social cue thing where people are around each other they're seeing other people like them yeah, become successful yeah. and then they feel like this is a possibility for them as well humans are modeling machines i mean that's yeah. what kids can, do and even adults do it unless you can see someone like you doing it i yeah. mean it's i think it was it's easier for you and i when we were young to look at steve jobs or larry elson and say oh like you Bill know, white guys can do it um all i'll say is I've seen success with an alternative model and it's powerful, which is apprenticeship. You know, yeah. if you truly consider a new model, it's actually- Define what that means in your context. Sure. What do you mean so by apprenticeship? What it means is um, a company says, 
we want to hire great talent. Uh, we're going to allocate 10 headcount to apprentices. So let me talk about what that means. So they say, okay, what we're going to do is actually invest in our local community. So right now, the Boys and Girls Clubs or Dress for Success, they, there's people live here. Let's invest in them. And this is where it comes to, okay, we got to make sure they have access to laptops and broadband. We have to uh, provide mentorship and support. You know, we have to do a lot of wraparound services because there are historical barriers, right? Um, and then they learn and then they come on board as apprentices. And apprentices mean most companies have software engineer one or design level mm -hmm. one. What we basically do is say, your company needs to create a new uh, pay grade called uh, SE zero, software engineer zero or design zero. And then we map literally this, um, the requirements to go from SE zero to SE one. And once you- So you pay people to come to the apprenticeship or the apprenticeship yeah, pays the it's company? Paid. It's paid. Yeah, Which way? so um, so you pay your apprentices. Got it. Um, Isn't the way apprenticeships work? They would they either work for free or they paid. Um, that that's sort of internship. Yeah. Whereas apprenticeship is very different. The Got idea it. is there's a real job at the end. Because internships you're not allowed to give the intern according to law. Right. My understanding is you can't give them work that would actually be work that people would do yeah. for pay, which this makes why, it insane. Right. This is why apprenticeship. I mean, carpenters and electricians and um, florists have been doing apprenticeship for you know, millennia, like, why aren't we doing this in tech? It's such a Well, I mean, the model. reason is obvious, isn't it? Well, because people have a perception. No. The reason is because if you take your great developer and you say, teach this person how to develop, they can't be developing 50 hours a week. Yeah, this is And then you're going to get run over by your <laughs> competitors. So this is the funny thing. That's, that's how Zuckerberg thinks, for sure. Well, the, but the problem is there's, it's it's like tech debt. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, if you assume that your best engineers are actually operationally effective 100% of the time, you're actually not a good manager. You don't understand that people are dealing with all sorts of things. So what you're saying is mentoring is actually, you should think about it like tech debt. It's actually part of building a sustainable long-term product that's good. So passing down your time to a, to a mentee is actually good business. Mm -hmm. And actually at Treehouse, we've said, who wants to mentor? And Every single engineer held up their hands because people want to give back. I could totally see that. Kim, why do you think yeah. these things don't exist in the I would, um, well, I wanted to bring up a different point, which is sure. I think look at the representation issue and the larger issues that Facebook is, you know, dealing with as a political entity mm. um, are interrelated. Mm. And I, I think that, you know, if your employee base, you know, I, I'm not just talking about diversity and representation in a purely American sense. I'm also talking about it in an in, in international sense, yeah. which is like, if you have more people in the company who have kind of a lived experience where institutions and power has been tilted or mm. balanced against them in potentially like a harmful or like, if, if you have more employees with an understanding of how power can be used um, malevolently, like you'll have people with more of a mindset who can understand how the tools and, and the, the products that they're building at scale yeah, can you're also be about used. And right. authoritarian uh, regimes and, you know, people who control the press in their countries and potentially yeah. or I mean or I mean even in if, if we want to bring it back to the domestic American experience like a lot of African-American um, millennials like they have grandparents who have stories of what it was like to live mm -hmm. in the Jim Crow South yeah. they have family members who have stories of what it was they like to you know know people no family members who were lynched or attacked or run out of town. Like you can talk to anyone, like people have their grandparents' stories. Yeah. And so 
there is and that legacy and that history is passed down and that memory is passed down within them. So they know how institutions can be abused. Um, it all goes back to the person in charge. Zuckerberg has no like social adeptness, I think, and I think he has no moral compass except for growth. And you just put someone like that with unchecked power. And then you have Sheryl Sandberg there, who's an operational machine, making this incredibly operationally perfect ad network with yeah. somebody who is just doesn't care where the chips fall in terms of building a social network and wants to take all friction out. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, so it's this is a form. I mean, it, it's not like technical debt in an engineering sense, but it's, it is a type of institutional debt yes. where over time that lack of awareness um, has caught up with Facebook, the company itself. And, you know, for other companies that operate in the real physical world, like an Uber or Lyft or whatever, that's going to happen much sooner because it's like you're moving physical pieces and bits and atoms around. Whereas, um, you know, in, in a social networking sense, like there's an assumption that the company could operate under like the kinds of software margins that it has over the last decade. And now we're seeing some of the negative externalities of that. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, they're not going to be allowed to buy the next Instagram or WhatsApp, that I think is off the table. I think the government's going to be like, yeah, no, no you've got enough Possibly. power. It depends on the who controls the FTC and who's who, which commissioners are appointed to it. So you have to look at the breakup of who's... Well, the right hates them because they deplatform everybody. Mm -hmm. And the left hates them because they let the Russians collude to put them in. So I think they're equally hated by the Bernie Sanders and the right, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, but you have to see like how people actually vote. I mean, like there are... A number of merger discussions are happening like this or last year. I mean, like, it depends who's on the commission and who gets appointed. So you'd have to yeah. keep up pressure on whoever is the next. Um, yeah. I just think whoever it is, even left or right, they both equally hate the impact Facebook has had. I think they're equally, dis dis yeah. there's equal disdain for them. Right. I think we all understand now how much power Facebook has. And I don't think we all understood before. I, I think it's. Have you curtailed your Facebook knows. usage or lowered it? Yeah, I, I I do not use Facebook hardly at all anymore. It, it's strange. You, I, um, I mean, I'm I'm an active Instagram user, so yeah, that's a product. Me too. Yeah, yeah. So, we're, <laughs> we're on Facebook, I guess, right? Yeah, I've been trying to deprecate my usage because I just hate them, and I had turned off my account for a couple of years, and it's just incredibly hard because we have our ad advertising. Right. It's utility. And then I have logins. So I'm not using Facebook Connect anymore. And I've been like turning off all my posts. I got like a little Google Chrome extension that turns off all your likes. Turn off your, so I've been like going through my oh, entire history and turning everything off. And I deleted all my tweets over uh, a thousand. I have like the last thousand tweets only. But I backed know, them all up. I was like, you know what? Enough. I don't want to get caught up in this like me debating like Islam and terrorism from eight years ago, right. you know, and right. like, yeah. or like That's interesting. Th this issue of like pipeline issues or whatever, like, you know, we would have vibrant discussions on these communities and right. now it's like, oh, well, let me take one text that Kim did, you know, out of context where she made a joke about, yep. you know, some person in Palo Alto who got up to a lectern and, you know, was goofy and that's like your whole define your whole definition right. of your career is going to be that one tweet. But so let's separate yeah. that. So you're saying, well, I don't really want this past stuff out there, which is fine, but are are you also saying I'm not going to use these platforms in the future? Like I want to stop. I am lowering it. I'm using it more strategically. Because I feel yeah. like the problem is, is the growth for your marketing strategy is on these platforms. I mean, you, you literally must use them. 
I use them to just take clips from this show and put it out there. <laughs> you know why? Because if people hear my voice, like we had a, just a hard discussion yeah. about race and gender and whatever and pipeline. Mm. If I were to write the word pipeline in a tweet, people are like, oh my God. It's <laughs> not oh right my now God. saying pipeline. It's not, it's not oh my God. It's just, it's like. I it's roll. A, yeah, no, it's a thing that we should, you know, yeah, it's a thing that we should but, probably. But what move do you on think from. about this? Like it, it is, you know, it's clear Facebook has extreme power, but yet. Your your portfolio companies, you, me, my my company. I'm going to use Facebook, their ad platform, Instagram's platform yep. to grow my company. Am I being hypocritical, or like, is there a choice now? Um, I mean, I think this is one of the questions that sort of intersects with um, questions of antitrust and monopoly power. Mm. And you know, at, at that point, when it has that level of gravity and force, what is it? How should it be managed? How should it be looked yeah. at? How should it be? And here's yeah. an even bigger one. Do we want to own the largest companies in the world? Do we do want China to own them? I think that's, and that, just, and that's, I what think that's a red herring of a debate. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, the, the I, like, I, do I, like, I think that's an excuse that a lot of these companies use just not to have like the level of domestic or European, like both American or European scrutiny that they probably should have. Well, Europe's pretty scrutinous of the companies now with the fines they've been given. But if you just think about it, imagine you're the SEC and you ban Elon Musk or you stop another company and then they don't grow as fast or you cap the number of Lyfts or Ubers in a city. It's like, okay, well now these companies can employ less people, generate less tax. But who's not, I mean, who's saying that Facebook, I mean, itself isn't de facto effectively banning the existence of lots of other potentially innovative companies. It's possible. It's just a harder argument to make when you've got one giant company over here with 100,000 employees and you're like, let's let's take this American success story and let's kneecap them. It's just, it's, it's politically hard. I think that if you, um, I mean, I I would also see an example if you look at like in, in the Chinese market, I mean, the Chinese government is also exercising a lot more um, kind of interference or regulatory control you of think? domestic companies. There. Like there's an increasing usage <laughs> they pick of the winners, literally. domestic cells or yeah. cells, party cells within yeah. companies. Um, yeah. That's grown significantly over the last year, one to two years, where you actually have a political cell of party operatives within the company really? involved in management level decisions. Wow. And that oh, didn't used to be yeah. used. Like that, that went out of mm. favor for a while, but now it's back. Um, yeah, China's... A rigged market. It's kind of hard to understand exactly how anything works over there. That's pretty opaque mm. from accounting to mm. government to who gets to win. Mm. Did, uh, did you read the books um, AI Superpowers? Like, no, but I played Kai poker with Kai Fu last I, week. I'm about halfway a couple through weeks ago. it. And yeah. It was fascinating to me. I didn't mm. understand how entrepreneurship kind of worked in China. And it was, it was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of made me feel like the, the US versus China thing, like you said, is a red herring. It feels like there's a lot of nuance there. Yeah. I'm very fascinated. I haven't finished it yet, What's but it seems nuance, like a great Ken? book. The nuance about which part or about, I mean, there's I, I, just, there's just a lot of it. It's all nuance. a lot of it. It's all nuance. Well, it's just, it's not, entrepreneurship isn't even the same it, from what I can deduct in China versus here. It's just, yeah, it, read it. It's interesting. interesting it's book. very interesting that those companies don't have any presence in America. They have presence. It's, I mean, Tencent has WeChat. WeChat has like a very active user base among the diaspora all over the world. Right. Uh, How many WeChat users are in America? 10 million? 20 million? I don't, I don't know. know. 
but, but, but it's going to be like low. It compared the book talks about how I think it was Yahoo uh, went over installed basically. I think it was Yahoo went over and basically installed American Way over there, and it utterly failed. Oh yeah, that's and that's why how they wound up with their big position in Baidu right. and so or Alibaba. 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 Oh, this, this is very different. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. No. It, you're not allowed to operate over there. I mean, that's one of the big things. Right. But it's interesting how there isn't a cultural phenomenon here or there from America, except for maybe movies going mm. from America there. The work ethic that I, I read about in the book um, scared me. It mm-hmm. was. It's. It's yep. positively. Nine nine six. Nine nine six. It's positively the eighties and nineties here. Yeah. I just. By the way, nine nine six was pretty much the nineties. What are you talking about? Right. It's I, only these millennials who realize. I think you should explain what that is for your viewers. 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Yeah. Which is exactly what we did in the 90s and it into the 2000s. Very it's hard. only this recent generation that's like, it doesn't have to be crazy at work and you should have live life, you know, life work balance. It's just yeah. like social media. The middle, the middle part. It's like not a four day week. And makes it like super easy for people to be critical of people who choose to be on a mission and work whatever hours. Yeah. And that those people have no agency and can't leave those companies if they demand those hours. Right, right, right. You disagree with me, Kim? Um, I think that um, our firm, particularly like Alexis, has been a big proponent of taking something down called what he calls like hustle porn. Yeah. Super um, convenient since he oh, already made a ton of really? money and he's hustled. <laughs> I knew him in the early days. That kid was working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Alexis is a complete hypocrite. He was hustling. Now he's married to a Serena Williams who's got $100 million. He's made tens of millions already off of his investments and read it. I mean, come on. Well, it's very convenient for Alexis to be like, now hustle now. porn. Of course he does. All of us do when we're rich. If you get rich and you're 40 or 50 and you got the money already, you're like, oh, hustling is bullshit. Right. Well, and I would say, <laughs> that I would kid say, I would say like for, I mean, at least one thing that we notice, like with second time founders versus first time founders, right. they're just so much smarter and more efficient with yes. how they, you know, put their That's time together. True. And they also know what to freak out about and what not to freak right. out yes. about <laughs> in a very different way instead of freaking out about everything. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah. I'm busting his chops, but <laughs> I do see this trend. It, it's basically, they're all attacking Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah, right. And it's like, I get attacked a lot. I have this. I wake up at four thirty every day now, and you would not believe how why many because you're woke on social media. No, because I realize I need to work harder. I was I was the wait. No, people are attacking you. Oh, yeah, I see. Because of that, you like, changed you your mind. Sleep. I'm like, uh, yes, but see, I'm all I about mean, agency. Like, can't people just pick and be okay with the fact that some people want to have like a <laughs> lifestyle, and then other people, yeah. Like, if you were a musician and you played twelve hours a day or an Olympian, nobody would ever criticize you. I, but if yeah. you're in a an entrepreneur, you work at a entrepreneurial company. More, it's like you're I not mean, getting I criticized. I think his comment was more about like that hustle porn, like the porn part of it, where you're doing it to kind of uh, socially signal. Yeah, that's, when it's not actually that's true, nonsense. and then you're hiding your own I agree kind with of that, sense then. of vulnerability or your right, own. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah, yeah. No, no. If you're just like it's three a.m. and I'm taking a selfie of myself, like still grinding <laughs> and on Adderall. Still no. Yeah. <laughs> well, that actually is really dangerous because that that does not go anywhere. No. <laughs> Don't do this at home, kids. No, literally, I, I know people who've tried to do the performance en- enhancing thing. It was like a big thing at like one of the accelerators and like it's like that's that's not gonna lead to a good place it's not gonna lead you where you want to go like get sleep yeah but you know if you find something you're truly passionate about and you want to work hard on it and you think it's gonna make a difference yeah great let's talk about uh, since we're here on this week in disasters uh (laughs) let's talk about the disaster that is housing it continues here the uh housing crisis um 
we were supposed to have either approved or in the process of proving when you and I started talking online, Kim, like, I don't know, five or six years ago, 50,000 units were supposed to be in some there, the, process. So in San Francisco, there is a pipeline of 50,000 units. Most of those are in um, very long-term projects like Treasure Island hmm. and Hunter's Point, which now has, I don't know, what kind of nuclear waste on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oops. Uh, the shipyard and, or potentially, or the, well, we don't know, but the testing was... was, was so these um, are like planned communities kind of situations. These are large-scale developments that take decades to do. Hmm. And then there's a lot of kind of mid-sized and smaller projects in there. Hmm. Um, but I would say like, you know, from so 2012 or so we had the bottom of the cycle 2008 2009 then um the market really started to take off in the barrier around 2012 and then everything was very heated from 2012 to maybe like 2017 or so and there was a lot of production um by a lot i mean like 4,000 units a year or 3,000 units a year instead of 2,000 units a year um in 2014 2015 and 2016 and then um it topped out through a combination of factors. Um, construction costs are a significant part of that. I mean, construction, the construction industry, um, there was a lot of labor that kind of cycled out in the last recession and was not replaced by a younger generation of workers. So there's massive construction shortages all over the state. And obviously, not only was it there to begin with, the fires aggravated that. All right. Yeah. We lost hundreds of thousands of homes in the fires. Yeah, tens of thousands of homes. Tens and then, of thousands yeah, of homes. And can you can you describe at, at a macro level the problem that's happening for the listeners who don't understand? Like, why is housing a problem? Um. Yeah, in California or in the Bay Area, the median home is maybe 10, 11x the median income. It's pretty... 10 or 11x. Yeah. So it's pretty... It's very expensive, very unaffordable. Lots of folks... Obviously, that affects a huge swath if not the majority of workers in the Bay Area um, and there are a lot of there's a couple things going on here one is that you know California um, it's the mythology around the West Coast the mythology around you know states like California Oregon Washington or you know West Coast states where people pioneers and whatever came and came to the frontier built their stuff and um, when we suburbanized a lot of the West Coast in the 1950s and 60s, that was sort of an echo of that that mythology. People came out here for cheap housing, sunshine, whatever. And then a lot of the coastal land um, was built out, coastal flatland that's easy to build on, um, was built out by the 1970s or so here. And then after that, uh, communities started to downzone their neighborhoods actively in the 1970s. What does that mean? Down zone meaning like restrict the zoning. So like before you could kind of build whatever and then- Height-wise. Height-wise, density-wise. And then in the 1970s, a lot of communities started to say single family homes Uh, only here. Which benefits wealthier people. Which benefits people who already owned there. Uh, There were non-development basically. Like if you look at Brentwood, Santa Monica, or here, Atherton, Palo Alto, whether it's LA or here. Yeah. They basically just like no more construction. So you need higher density, right? Otherwise yeah, but no, no, get... but that's now that's banned. That's illegal, right? That's insane. So it became illegal in the seventies, and then on top of that, you know, housing prices started to go out of control in the seventies, and then California voters reacted again, passed Prop thirteen, which capped property taxes. You have your own version in Oregon called Measure Five, passed mm. in the early nineties. This is critically important. So yeah. you, whenever you buy your house in California, you pay that tax forever. 
around that really? tax, no around more than two percent. And so then your you, kids can also inherit it. No way. So, so there are people in San Francisco right now who live in Victorian. So that costs five million dollars. But they bought them for a hundred thousand, so they're literally they pay paying oh two thousand dollars a year in tax on what should be fifty thousand a year in tax. That's insane. Why would is that right, Kim? Um, I mean, if 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 yeah, if it was reassessed at yeah. a contemporary rate, yeah. Why would or why do people want to downzone? What what is? Yeah, I mean, this buys into this a certain cultural aesthetic, this certain mythology of like you own your own piece of land, uh, you have a yard, you have a backyard, you have car, you know, you have your own house, uh, you have your car, you have your privacy. And let's be honest. Housing prices. So where I live in Hillsboro, they when they showed me the map along El Camino Real, there was like this jagged edge. And I asked the realtor, like, what's that? Like, oh, those are the, you know. Really? I was like, what? They're like, those are the apartments. I'm like, oh. So they literally drew the map, it seems, around the apartment yeah. building. So Hillsboro and Palo Alto are only single family homes, I believe. Yeah. Right. No multifamily. So I would, the other thing I would add, you know, that ties back to our earlier conversation about race is um, it's very interesting that, you know, from the 1940s through the 1960s or so, um, African-Americans could not could not really buy homes mm. in um, white neighborhoods for a lot of reasons, because, you know, the private real estate industry um, backed up by federal lending policy you know, would exclude would, them. Would, yeah, would exclude them or steer them or say like, well, if an African-American family moves to your neighborhood, your property values are going to drop. Right. And so by the time the civil rights movement happened and by the time we changed the law um, to ban these type of practices in the Fair Housing Act in 1968, which was passed a week after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, um, you know, it's funny, interesting Worth noting that a lot of the downzoning happened in started happening in the years after that. Yeah, um, once explicit practices were were banned, um, and so like these things have accumulated over forty years, and they've also it's just kind of been this massive housing deficit over the last forty years, and it also like affects the way that cities plan because you know if you can't if 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 you have residential houses that pay this tax rate or the flat cap tax rate over many decades, you're not actually making sufficient tax revenue for them to yeah. cover for the cost of police schools and right. fire. So and so you'll see, you'll see what you'll see is cities make choices in order to shore up their own balance sheets, so to speak, to, you know, build office space, approve office space, because office pays taxes yeah. right, right. without <laughs> costing as much in services. And then and then that's aggravates no this housing. imbalance. And so like San Jose, for wow. example, sold a parcel of land near Deridon Station last week or two weeks ago for about a hundred just over a hundred million to Google. Yep. And the plan, you know, is to bring like, you know, twenty thousand workers there. And there's there'll be some housing, but obviously not enough housing for that many workers. Wow. And that will help San Jose's long term fiscal sustainability because now it will have more office space to pave the tax revenue for everything else. But it creates a situation where it's like, oh, well, here's another giant tech campus, another one. Yeah, <laughs> and no. then and no housing. And, then, and uh, you know, and then like some housing, but not really enough to cover the amount of housing need that is represented right. by the campus. And so like all of these cities are doing and that. And then to get voted into office, you have to pander to a certain demographic that votes. Or just not freak them out, you know. Or not like, freak them out that you're gonna change their taxes. So my understanding well, not, is not, not change their neighborhood. Not change your right. neighbor, but also th this idea of changing your. Nobody wants to touch 
the taxation of homes and make them pay taxation that's yeah, more I, I don't think anybody, commensurate with the value of the home. I don't think people are really talking about that. What people are talking about is in 2020, there will be a ballot measure to do something called split roll, which will... So this law also covered um, office. So Disneyland pays... Disneyland's tax from decades ago. The That's Brentwood golf so course insane. pays, like the Beverly Hills golf course pays the tax rate from decades ago. Like literally on, a, it's like a value yeah. of like 100,000. It's just yeah. totally illogical. Yeah. And so there will be a ballot measure two years from now to um, amend the commercial part of that tax. And that will generate about, you know, anywhere from nine to $11 billion for primarily for the school system in California. Yeah. Wow. I'm getting up to speed on this. Yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. And, and this is, I hate to keep banging on about this, but this is why I keep going back to apprenticeship. If you, if people have access to the high paying jobs, they can begin to get access to the system. Yeah. Right. And if you can never get the job, you can never get access. You never get in. Right. And then you get another tech center campus thing and you can't buy a house. Well, and then everybody got duped into thinking that college was going to be this way to get those <laughs> right. high-powered jobs. I know. And they went 100, 200,000 in debt. Right. There's another relationship there between Prop 13 and college because the University of California and CUC system, those used to be tuition-free. Yeah. And actually, if you go back to when this law was passed, like Jerry Brown, who's also governor in 19, 1970s in California, he's governor now. Yeah. He's just been governor... <laughs> Governor Choice. Um, in perpetuity. Yeah, forever governor. I mean, until Gavin, uh, Gavin gets sworn in. He, yeah, he was like, if you guys pass this, we might have to char start charging tuition to the university system. And he started, like, he warned everyone, literally. Yep. And people and still, did. and people still voted in. And you know wow. what? That decimated the education system in California. It's so, really short term thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. See, we've got to figure this out. I, I got the domain name. <laughs> Good. MaryJason.com. <laughs> Kim is going to be like my uh, secret <laughs> consultant. I have her on the I program just so I. <laughs> no, all I have to do is read her tweets. It's very helpful. Trust yeah. me. I have my my position papers are like I'm just cribbing all those great tweets. But yeah, uh, the, the other addition on top of that is now like wow, this climate change fire wildfire thing. Holy, holy moly! Holy I mean, yeah, fire's yeah. definitely been part of the history of California forever. But like it's, what we've seen in the last two years, unbelievable. Right. It's pretty crazy because if you think about Malibu and, you know, I, I lived in Santa Monica for a while uh, and you, you start looking at the wildfires going on there. These are like the most expensive real estate and you have all the oceanfront real estate is now because of rising sea levels, all those 10, 20 million dollar houses. Now it's going to be hard to sell those. It's going to be hard to buy or sell a home anywhere in Malibu because you're in a fire thing. And I've been looking for systems to keep houses from going on fire. Mm. Um, and it was interesting. I started doing all this research and, you know, um, Trump made this, you know, seemingly ridiculous statement of like, you know, like they have to rake up in, in Norway. I think they're raking or Finland, like they're raking things up and that helps. So I go online and I'm like, go down the rabbit hole until like three in the morning, trying to think of startup ideas around <laughs> it. Every video on YouTube by firefighters about wildfires yeah. is about raking up leaves and underbrush really? and getting away from houses. So like in that case, yeah, Trump's, it, you know, 100% correct <laughs> in that. Well, what are the ways the, to the keep homes? The homes are the fuel. So like the trees, the foliage, the trees in California are evolved to withstand fire. Right. They're evolved to withstand fire or the non-native trees are actually evolved to spread fire. But, Except right. um, when all the pine needles are up against a home. So yeah. I watched all these videos from the 80s and 90s and they're like, here's how you stop the fire from spreading. Right. You rake. rake up all the stuff and you make sure none of it is leaning against the home. Uh, 
and then you put rocks along yeah. the edge of your but home. I, and I would yeah. I would also stress like in a and in rooftops in a firestorm. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, depends. Raking might yes. not help. The, well, I mean, listen, you you have two things going on. Like one, is there a way to mitigate it? And then two, like in a on a day to day basis, yeah. and there's like, oh, what is our big plan here? Yeah. Because so I mean, obviously, you want to manage vegetation. Yeah, you know, if you have trees that are very close to your property. Yeah, you know. Yeah, take care yeah. of them. Not a good idea. Um, yeah, but then on the other hand, like the a firestorm is significant. Like the tunnel fire, the nineteen ninety one tunnel fire in the Bay Area, that was like a home every eleven to thirteen seconds would go up on fire. It's very fast. Well, and there's and it wind. Has to do yeah, with the Diablo winds and the Santa Ana yeah, winds. Yeah, the winds are just yeah. crazy once they get going. Um, yeah, we have two investments in the housing space. I think housing is like the real mm. like opportunity. Education housing slash construction and healthcare are the hardest, most intractable, seemingly people are the most pessimistic about. And those are the ones I'm looking for as an investor. Powerful. Yeah. If you think about it, like, yeah, Yeah, that's what I say. I have such a long-term view. I mean, if you can truly think long-term education or any of those. No, the two that we're doing blockable is making like houses in factories and then dropping them in places. And we're doing them for low income, homeless, and fires and all that kind of stuff. Oh, cool. And then any place is taking all the 2.5 star hotels that are getting murdered. Right. Two and three star hotels are getting murdered by Airbnb. Right. And they're turning them into three to six month housing options oh, wow. like for millennials. So you can live in a hotel in any place. So check out any place cool. if you want to uh, live in a hotel. Uh, all right, let's talk a little bit about education as we wrap up here. What do we want to talk about? Education or um, Google Dragonfly, China, Google China. Talk about education. It's his- I'm a little passionate about education, so yeah. I would I would lean that <laughs> way. All right, U.S. is spending more on education than any other countries, and we're falling massively behind. Um, it, the, go. This, <laughs> but this is what a should we logical, do? If you're the God King. Well, this is a logical outcome of what we've built in America. So, the university system uh, really began to turn what it into what it is when veterans came back from World War II and they received funding to get a college degree. And so what happened is everybody started going to college and which is a great thing because back then it was a good investment. And now you have everybody having a degree, but actually what what's since happened is every job has turned into a trade job. Mm. So look at all of us in this room. Are any of us trained at university to do this? Is there any real connection between- Absolutely, my master's was in podcasting. Right, exactly. <laughs> it was a great in investment Podcasting from Fordham I mean, University in you know, the 1990s. <laughs> all of us are doing highly advanced trade skills. Yeah. And, and, and yet we're training people in a, you know, uh, a system that absolutely does not you know, optimize for that. So it's clearly broken. What's the so, end game for universities? Um, most of them are gonna go out of business. Really? And yeah. I mean, of course. Are, are millennials just opting out of like going $200,000 in debt? Are they yes. just going to be like, no? The, so we're seeing by far people uh, pick schools where there's a job at the end. I mean, this is what the good boot camps figured out. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to opt for a fun boot camp that's still in person that has a real job and gets you into tech. That makes a hundred percent sense. And those cost like 10, 15 grand. Yeah, 15 grand. Totally worth it. And there's a couple good boot camps out there. So great, go to those. And then the rest of us are fighting each other tooth and nail for graduates from Stanford. um, When the truth is there's actually talent right in our neighborhood that could be taught a skill for a fraction of the cost and stay longer. 
I mean, the education system, the higher education system is completely broken. And it, I predict in 10 years, um, all of the mid-tier state schools, like the one I went to, Colorado State, will be gone. And gone? Gone. And you'll have the high... You don't, you, I mean, like, because no one's attending it or because the state's not sufficiently funding it or what? Um, mostly because people aren't attending. Yeah. There is no value in a bachelor's uh, degree in 10 years' time. Um, so millennials, are, or whatever this comes after millennials, is Generation Z are going to be too savvy to go 200000 in debt because they're going to watch their parents or older siblings complain about their student loans and say, you know what, screw it. Yep. I'm not going to drop 150000 into debt to do yep. this. I mean, and, and You people, buy that, man? Okay. I don't know if I... I mean, I don't know if I... I don't... I'm not as you know, steeped in the current, you know, post-secondary or the secondary ed education market as you are. So I don't know for sure. I know that I look at the California system and, um, I mean, the University of California system is one of the, the best, if not the best, public university system in the world. Mm -hmm. And then the CSU system is a really important lifeline, particularly to working class students in the state. Yes. So, and I, I do not want to undermine the value um, of certain degrees and the, uh, the idea of going to college. Like if college was tuned correctly at job market, then it would make perfect sense. But we, you know, the phrase is the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed, right? Yeah. We are seeing the future of education right now in apprenticeship. So what we're doing is installing apprenticeship programs at cutting edge companies like Airbnb and HubSpot and MailChimp, and they're creating talent. There is no need for a college degree because what you're doing is giving people the trade skill they need plus the soft skills they need to be successful. It's just an economic issue, right? Like if college was yes, it, half of what your first year salary was or even equal to your first year salary, you'd be like, okay, yeah. I'm going to come out of school with, you know, it's going to cost me $40,000 to go to college, 10K a year, and my first job is going to be 40 or 50K. Mm. Seems palatable, but, but when your first job's 40K and your debt is 150. Yeah. And your potential home is a million. It's crazy. It's crazy. But yeah. even you're still giving up a huge amount of income potential. So if you come out of high school and you go an apprenticeship, you're going to immediately make income. Um, you're going to immediately start paying income tax. Huh. And you're not going to have any student debt. And so you'll be able to save into a 401k. Right. And I've done the math. You basically end up uh, earning over $2 million more in lifetime net worth. Well, you're not starting in debt. You're starting... With even if it's de minimis, you're starting with income. some income. Right. It's interesting. And then it grows. You know, you I tweeted one time and I was job. like, I'm going to do an apprenticeship. It's $50,000 a year. Send me your, you know, kid and I'll teach him how to be an angel investor. And then you send one and I'll give one as a scholarship. Somebody would be very and smart to take that. Do you know how many people respond? Like a dozen people were like, are you serious? I was like, that was a joke. No, that Aww. would be, that's the future of education. But think about it. If you're some yeah. rich family and you got some kid who wants to be in a investor do that how much would they pay to sit with you and you know alexis and smart, gary twenty five thousand a year fifty thousand a year they would pay that some rich family and then you just give one scholarship for every one you do right I i'm liking this apprenticeship thing well but but like so your job you know mm -hmm. now you're a primarily investor right yeah okay do you think that you could apprentice somebody successfully and have them be successful without a college degree um, I think that we could, but we would need to probably retool a lot of about the way that we work. Um, you know, it's like, does everyone know how to manage someone who's learning on the job? Very like, does someone know how to like send their time that way? But is a yeah. college yeah. 
Is a college graduate any different? They don't, they've not worked on the job. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we don't have any recent college. No, I think what Kim's saying, staff, like, you, so. Kim okay. would have to change how she does her job. Yeah. We would, include... we would have to change like the, which is fine. It's just like, it would, it would also require like changes to yep. the institution and the workplace itself. Yep. Yeah. See, yeah. for me, I, my approach was they get to sit next to me right. in almost every meeting. That's it. <laughs> totally. I'm that. not going to talk to them. Right. They literally just get to sit next to me on either side in meetings. When I meet founders, don't talk. Right. And it'd be the, one of the most valuable Bring a jobs you can do. Take notes. Yep. That's it. Yeah. I'm a big believer. But this is actually the ROI. We've calculated the ROI in apprenticeship and it's over 600% for companies. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the future of education. So I think we'll see all this madness go away. All right. I think uh, I just want to say about the Google Dragonfly thing. <laughs> Let's touch on it. I am super sure. disgusted. Uh, I'm super confused. I, okay, I'll explain it to you. They have an internal project yeah. no, I, that I know they're ashamed yeah. of. Yeah. And for the audience's case, you tell me if I think I got this right. There's an internal uh, project called Dragonfly. They uh, wow. were creating a, 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 a search engine for China that was using uh, or prepare, which maybe the Chinese government is in cahoots on this or not, but basically. It gives the Chinese government control over search results, and they do really wacky stuff like pull the data for air quality when you do an air quality search from the state-owned oh, yeah. monitors oh, yeah. as this opposed very, to the this independent is very ones. I was very, oh, I, you know, gosh. during the air event, I was looking up different air quality scores. Yeah, and I was like, oh, we're we're worse than China today. And then someone like, reached yeah. out to me who knew Fake about news. this situation in Google, and they were like. Yeah, this is your AQI from is not accurate. Everybody uses the American yeah. embassies yeah. Uh, readings. But anyway, uh, so everybody inside of Google is like, well, this is ridiculous. Uh, we don't want to work on it. And then today, Sundar was before Congress, and he said that they're not talking to the government about it, uh, and they have no plans for it, even though they have hundreds of engineers working on it, which mm. seemed to I'm, me to be I'm just, I'm a like, convenient use of I guess I'm just confused. Words. It's like, I'm, I'm confused. It's like... I think there's a lot of people internally with that company who think that there's actually realistically no shot, no chance in, you know, what, you know, yeah. I'm not allowed to start. There's no chance, a snowball's chance in whatever. In heck. That heck, yeah, that like the Chinese government would actually allow them to operate in China. So I'm very confused as to why they would take so much it. risk in well, the American political climate to, to do it. Oh, okay, that it risk. Because I was about to say, there's no financial risk because they have more money than they know what to do with. Yeah, I know. But like, I mean, why, I mean... There are people that's the internal question. to Google and, who are like, and Larry and Sergey right. don't like, know about it. That was complete nonsense. Yeah, they're claiming Larry and Sergey don't know about it. That's ridiculous. And if you were to launch it, you would be responsible for handing over journalists, independent thinkers, artists, professors, anybody who said anything wrong to the Chinese government, to be tortured, imprisoned, or otherwise disappeared. And if you don't think that's true, check in with Yahoo, who had to hand over people who were using Yahoo Mail over there. Yeah, that was a very famous case. Yeah, and it's not, not okay. Think about this. So anyway, they're not going to do it. I think it's too much internal pressure. Um, but why would they actually do that? That's why, the like, weird thing. Just, I think right. maybe they were taking a shot. And there is one group of people who thinks engagement is the way to deal with dictatorships. And what they haven't realized is what we learned with Saudi Arabia, with China, with any of these despots or dictators. If you enable them, 
they're just going to get 10 times worse. Right. You have to hold the line with a dictator because they have unchecked power in their own country. Unchecked power leads people to behave abhorrently. Mm. And the second you think that you're going to be able, just because we have financial ties with North Korea or Saudi Arabia, that it's going to change the fundamental behavior of that leader, you're dreaming. Right. It's not going to. No. It's not going to. And Preach. Preach. Facebook, <laughs> my first job was at Amnesty International. I feel very passionate about human rights. Yeah. Mm. And Zuckerberg is so desperate to get in there and have Facebook in China that he would love, Zuckerberg would love to hand over anybody the Chinese government wants in exchange for getting that you know, billion plus people on his platform. That's how morally bankrupt Mark Zuckerberg specifically is. That individual named Mark Zuckerberg is begging them, learning Chinese, I mean, also his wife's Chinese, I believe, so I think he was learning it as well for that reason, but he went there to impress them on tours, speaking Chinese, doing Q&As in Chinese, specifically to try to convince the country to let him in. And he knows full well that all those DMs going back and forth, every profile, everything you search for, he's going to have to give to the government. And he would do it in a heartbeat. He is the worst type of American. He's the American who takes the American system and exploits it for everything it's got. And then other people who don't yet have democracy and freedoms, and he's willing to compromise them to make a quick buck. Can you imagine you have $50 billion personally, and then you want to go to China to imprison people and hand them over to the government? I, I You have to be deranged to have that much money and think you need the next 50. So I am not defending Sorry, any, I don't any of those to go on a tirade. Um, and I appreciate hearing how you really feel. Um, <laughs> no, but, it's disgusting but, to me that Google specifically would even consider it, to your point, Kim. Like, why? But I, yeah, I just don't know... I, a like, do they realistically think they have a shot of operating there from the like? I just, I, I don't, don't think the Chinese government I, would allow them to operate. Do you like, think? Just, sorry. Yeah, no, no, go on. Do Nobody you think there's knows. like a level of hubris that kind of comes with power? This idea of well, we can get in, and and then we can affect good change. Like if yeah, we that's can't the get engagement in, argument, right? And it, it's it, never I feel worked. like that's what's generally going on, and that's why I'm I'm yeah. saying I'm not defending Mark at all, but I'm wondering if there's a deep. You think part of, you think Hitler? I mean, I think there's. I mean, there's. Was I, interested I don't. In being I, don't I don't know if it <laughs> you know? would be like. I don't know if it's a financial motivation so much no. as like the the pride or hubris of, of connecting, putting every single person on the planet. World on domination. That that's right. what I. Right. I think it's had more to do with that. Uh, you know, goal or achievement versus like the financial. Yeah, and the fact that you would even see like that as an achievement to get a dictatorship or, a, mm. you know, an, a, an, a country where people are put in jail for their religious beliefs or, you know, any beliefs potentially. I mean, you the, know that, I mean, his role models are what Roman emperors. He looks back. What was the, who was the name of the emperor that he praised? Oh, God, I'm not sure. You, but yeah, yeah, no, he was in his. Yeah. I mean, th I, here's the thing about Mark. He's incredibly talented at copying other people's ideas and building a big organization. He has no moral compass or no understanding of the arc of history. None of that has hit him. So back to the college education, we've got to have free college education. You should have finished college and have just a, a better view of how the world works. Right. Yeah. I, the worst person you could ever put in charge of a global social network is Mark Zuckerberg. It's interesting because you've been against Zuck for years. This goes way back. Well, no, I met him and I, I was like, oh my God, this is the absolute worst person you could put in charge of this. He was just so was awkward. the first time you met him? I met him at a TED conference. It was me at dinner. Me. Larry, Sergey, Ev Williams, and I think Salar from YouTube uh, or early Google, Lori Park, and Mark Zuckerberg at dinner. Huh. 
And he couldn't make eye contact with me. He had nothing to say. But putting all that aside, I just like, oh, this person just steals everybody's idea. I could see from the beginning. And I knew there wasn't much there. But when I saw him do things where he was tricking users, it was so obvious to me in the early days that he was trying to trick users. And then I saw him screw all his partners. So I was like, oh, he screwed his own partners, Eduardo, whoever. Everybody was like in lawsuits with him. That doesn't happen by accident. Like if you're in your, if your first year of your startup, you're screwing all your co-founders, something's wrong. It's not good. Then he just flipped all the switches from private to non-private. And I was like, oh, you're you're killing trust with users is what I said. Mm. This is, we all drink from the same well, the right. same group of users. Don't screw it up. And that's right. exactly what he's done. What's happened. Um, it, it's truly hard to know people's hearts and minds. Um, so I think we should remember that yeah. that there's a, there's you. you know there's something we we don't truly know is mind or heart but i guess you just look okay where do we end up and unfortunately it's in a spot where you know you know um, there's a company with tremendous power and we've we're dealing with it it's very you know? i mean it and it, it it's complicated on so many different levels like if he like so this is my this is my legal understanding and then it, it probably since i'm not a lawyer i mean my understanding is that the two-tiered the multi-tiered stock structure that oh, he operates Facebook. No, no, is is he's got came, but it actually hasn't been tested fully at, oh, the, really? at the Supreme Court level. Oh yeah. And so if he was to he make has 10x a, voting power, yeah, but if he was to make about. a set of long-term decisions that diminished the value of oh. the the company itself, um, in favor of doing something that you know might arguably more be more healthy or holistic for the health of democracy, and then sacrifices which are like if he could that, actually do that. If he well, I'm just saying that. Stock structure hasn't been tested. Oh, that's interesting. At a certain point, though, Ryan, you got to stop giving people the benefit of the doubt and just yeah. judge them based on their behavior. Yeah. True. True. And that, well, it's the person who had a 20 year audit and a 20 year fine by the FTC and did not care. Right. I mean, that's why I said ultimately that you know. an individual saying Facebook has a black people problem, I, I do hold him accountable, right? Yeah. At some point, you say, I guess you don't care, you know? Yeah. It's tough. Well, it also goes to unchecked power. You it's know? also, I mean, the other thing, I mean, Facebook, the headquarters itself is located, you know, flush to a historically African-American community. East, East Palo, Palo Alto. Alto. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. now and like, that's like gentrifying. Right like, All right, the talent right could come from right there. Like, why are they not doing that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ah, it's so frustrating. Apprenticeships, go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been an amazingly insightful, sometimes depressing, and super woke uh, discussion. Thanks for mm. having it with me. I Kim appreciate you dropping knowledge on housing. I know. I love I having Kim on the program. I'm thank just like you. a sponge. She's <laughs> like, oh, and then in 1973, yeah, that's how I'm that. taking notes for my totally. mayoral. Yeah, you're Mayor Jason. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you have to, what do you have to run against Mayor Kara? Oh, we're, we're, we've had multiple dinners discussing this. <laughs> uh, we're going to do it together. That would be And we're going to debate exciting. together. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, do either of us actually want the job? <laughs> but the debates are going to be amazing. Karen and I have been friends for a long yeah, time. Yeah, that would be that would be great. And she's definitely going to run. And I'm, next year. Oh, that'd be so great. Oh, no, I think Come on. after that. I would yeah. somehow. When is the next year? Next year. And then it's five years after that. Four years. Four years. So I think in five years, I think you. It would not be shocking if you saw myself and Kara hey, debating that, five years. That from would now. be fun. I just have to liquidate my Uber position so I don't have a conflict of interest. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But well, yeah, in five years, soon. that would be perfect. Okay. Mm-hmm. I would sign up for that debate. Heck of a debate. Yeah. I'm basically going to pay Donald Trump in the debates <laughs> to try to just get all the votes to her because I think people in San Francisco are going to be so appalled by my approach. They're going to be like, oh, my God, that guy's like a That's mini clever. Giuliani, like right. a mini Bloomberg. Do not vote for him. Do not vote for him. Or, 
or, or vote for him. People oh, might gosh, say, you know what? No. I'm going to say I voted for Kara, <laughs> but I'm going to vote for that maniac because oh, he's going to double the number of police. Yeah. That's going to be my number one thing. I'm doubling that, the number of police. That's dark. That is dark. <laughs> no, it's not. It's getting us per capita to where New York City and every other major city is. Oh. And we're not going to allow any crime in the city. I love and if the you commit crime, go down in whether show. you break a window <laughs> or you steal a car, you're going to have to answer for crime. People in the city will not have to be subjected to the massive amount of crime going on here. And on that note. On that note. And you're not going to be able to own cars here anymore. Take an Uber, okay? Because <laughs> my Uber shares are in a trust owned by my daughter, London, okay? I have no control, Don Jr., controlling the Trump organization. Uh, hey, thanks, Ryan Carson. Go ahead and check out treehouse.com. What is team, it still? Team, team Treehouse. Team Treehouse.com, rather, and Treehouse on the Twitter. 25 bucks a month still? 25 bucks a month, yep. It's rock and roll, go. That's it? Yep. We also have a really good online boot camp. It's 200 bucks a month, best in the market. Um, check us out. That's it, 50 bucks a week? Yeah. The more important thing is if you're, it, probably people listening to this are entrepreneurs. If you're actually trying to create a diverse team, and create inclusive company, Google Talent Path Treehouse will help you out. Talent Path. Talent Path. This is a product that Treehouse provides Yeah. in order to help you have apprenticeship programs. Install apprenticeships. How do you charge it? 10K a month or something? You manage uh, it for We them? just charge the company to install the whole system. And ah. it's the- What does it cost per year? A quarter um, million dollars? I won't share, but it's uh, profitable for us and it's, it's so ROI Hundreds positive. of thousands of dollars, let's say. Something in that range. Yeah. You had to take it seriously. Yeah. It's a it's a real program. How many people are in that uh, program? We've got over uh, over 100 apprentices going through it. Our goal is- And you have four companies, five companies? I don't know, 10. Wow. Um, now it's, yeah, it's it's It's, it's going to be a crazy. bigger business than the online business, you think? Yep. Oh, that's yep. interesting. MailChimp, you said, is doing it? MailChimp, Vacasa, HubSpot, uh, MindBody, hmm. Airbnb. It's great. And uh, I think in 10 years time, we're aiming for half a million apprentices, so- Good going for you. For, we're going for that. it. Very exciting. What's it called again? Talent Path. Talentpath.treehouse. Just Talent Path Treehouse. Google that. Google it. You'll find it. Okay. All right. We'll see you uh, all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.